Welcome to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers. Trial Tested is a discussion about life and law created to elevate and inspire trial attorneys. My name is Dave Paul, and I will be your host for today's episode. I had the privilege of sitting down with American College past president, Earl Silbert. Sadly, he passed away on September 7th, but I'm excited that you'll get to hear that interview. He was wise and insightful and a kind man. He was a legal giant and he will be missed. It's my pleasure today to be with Earl Silbert. Earl is a graduate of Harvard College and Harvard Law School. He began his career doing 12 years of service in the Department of Justice and the Tax Division. And then he became the United States Attorney for the District of Columbia. He is well known for his role as the first prosecutor in the Watergate, I'll call it a scandal. I don't know what the right word would be for it. But he has had a career in private practice since 1979 and really done some extraordinary things with his life. He's a former president of the American College. It's my pleasure today to talk with Earl. Earl, welcome. Thank you very much. I told you before where I wanted to start was the fishing school. It just intrigued me. So can you tell me a little bit about that? I originally became associated with the fishing school when I met a fellow. I was taking a course having to do with religious instructions, and I met there a fellow who was a former policeman, community relations policeman. His name was Tom Lewis. I had been a prosecutor for many years, and we had a kind of a sympathetic, uh, simpatico between the two of us. And he told me about a little place that he had out in Northeast in which he was trying to teach uh, kids, get them a meal, uh, and they came home from school, they didn't have anything to eat, supplementing their learning. And I had done a fair amount of that, and I liked the tutoring and the working with the kids. And so Tom asked me to come out to his place. It was in Upper Northeast in Washington, which I did, and it was a tiny, tiny row house about eight feet across. Went back a little more than that, but not a whole lot. I talk about working with underprivileged kids coming from underprivileged families. I'd been in the U.S. Attorney's Office, which was like a local DA dealing with local crime, murders and rapes and robberies and, and this and that. That street in which Tom chose to open his school for young underprivileged kids was the most scary that I'd ever met in my own experience. Well, Tom Lewis was a remarkable man. As I said, he was a former police officer specializing in community relations, and he took his retirement savings to open this school to have wow. kids in the neighborhood come to it in the afternoon if they hadn't had a meal and to supplement their education and the basics in school. That was about 20, 25 years ago. And I'm still affiliated with the organization, though. I'm still on the board of directors. Tom Lewis unfortunately passed away, but there's an outstanding executive director that succeeded him. But the way the organization is now structured and what it's trying to accomplish is different than when Tom's view was to have the kids come into the school and work and learn there. Here, we're now supplementing education for kids in the D.C. public schools. And after school, they come into our program, you know, 10-year-old, 8-year-old, but have volunteers come in and work with trying to supplement their educational uh, training and skill experience. I know even 
going back to your time at Harvard, you did work with teen rec programs, and then you were a tutor with the Washington Housing Project. It seems like service has been a part of your life. And I just wanted to ask you, where did that come from? Where did the seeds or the birthing of you wanting to serve the community, where did that come from? Well, to identify something specifically, I don't know that I can do that. It was a way of giving back, which I've always thought one should try and give back. It was a way of getting involved and associated with other people who had similar dispositions or desires and to work together on it because one person by himself or herself accomplishes a lot less than if you get a number of people involved that generates an enthusiasm and a skill set that you wouldn't otherwise have. Yes. Well, I know a lot of people are appreciative of your decades of involvement as board chair and also chair of the fishing school. I'm sure there's great fruit out of that. I'd like to start with the U.S. attorney. And in particular, when you were at Harvard, in a thousand years, would you have predicted the pathway career-wise? that led you from Harvard to the sitting United States attorney in D.C.? Not a chance. (laughs) What did you see? What was the path you saw? I didn't. I didn't see any path. That was part of my problem. I wasn't even sure I wanted to be a lawyer or go to law school. But I did do that and then went to work for the government down in Washington. I was originally from Boston, Massachusetts. I liked that job. It was, as, you know, tax division, a public type of service organization. But in terms of anticipating that I would wind up in the tax division for the first three or four years after law school, or then go into other sections of the department, I just had no idea. What was it about you or your career that kind of led you moving from the tax division to become the acting United States attorney for the district? How I got from the tax division, I was just talking with a friend of mine in the Department of Justice, a law school classmate. He was trying cases himself down at the U.S. Attorney's Office. He said, why don't you come and try some cases? I said, well, I've been in, you know, doing appellate work in the tax division of the Department of Justice. Why not try this? And I applied to the office. I was fortunate enough to become an assistant U.S. Attorney. Then I worked there for about five years or more, and then decided that I ought to try something else. And I went over to the Department of Justice to work in the Deputy Attorney General's office for a year and a half, working on some significant legislative projects. And then I was asked by the U.S. Attorney to come back to the office and become his executive assistant, then the first assistant. And then when the then U.S. Attorney Harold Titus resigned, I was selected to be U.S. by the court. The court at that time selected the U.S. attorney if there was a vacancy, the appointed U.S. attorney not having been selected. The judges voted for me, and then after about a year and a half (laughs) and some hearings, I was appointed by the U.S. attorney. U.S. attorneys are normally a political appointee around the country. When there's a change in administration, for example, and Republicans take the place of Democrats, Democrats take Republicans. I was just fortunate that at the time there was a vacancy in the U.S. Attorney's Office that there apparently was no one with political pull who was seeking that job and was found to be acceptable. 
because I had no political pull. I was not in, you know, anybody involved with politics in any meaningful way. So that whatever it was, that it didn't have the usual procedure of、uh, being a political appointee. It seems like、uh, most people that served as assistant United States attorneys, when they look back on their career, they talk about it as some of the fondest memories they have, some of the most meaningful work. Was that true with your experience? Oh, absolutely! I would say that with an exclamation mark. Couldn't have a greater job than being an assistant U.S. attorney. Was terrific. I mean, I appreciated the opportunity to serve as United States Attorney, but you know, being an assistant U.S. Attorney, working with a bunch of similarly aged attorneys, fairly recently, many of them from law school, it was a terrific group, and it was just an experience. I loved to go to work. I couldn't wait to go to work every day. I just, I enjoyed it and learned so much. I was very grateful for that and very appreciative of the opportunity. It seems like a lot of AUSAs when they talk about it, it's almost like the purest service that they do in their career when they were in AUSA. Is that similar with you? Oh, absolutely. Again, there's just no question that that's the general feeling. Most of the assistant U.S. attorneys consider that to be the, <laughs> the highlight of their career,、yeah. even though they've been practicing law for one, two, or three years. What was the hardest part about being the United States attorney? Not necessarily a case, so I'm not necessarily talking about a case.、Right. But why was that a difficult job? It was a challenging job. There are a lot of issues that were circulating, legislative type issues that we were working with. A particular interest that I had in trying to make law enforcement in the District of Columbia more organized, not just running off the police in one direction. Narcotics division in another and the like. I thought law enforcement ought to be working with the U.S. Attorney as kind of the head person, calling in these various police chiefs or like special agents in charge of FBI section in the Office of Secret Service. And I pulled them together. It was a group of about ten. Now here were people. There was a problem out there in D.C., which at that time had a very high crime rate. There's a problem there, and. It wasn't being addressed in a unified sense of trying to organize and take advantage of the skill sets that were present in the agents and investigators in D.C. And so we put them together with the idea that you know the narcotic section in Department of Justice would work with the narcotic section in the police department, rather than each going their separate ways, all to、yeah. the advantage of those who are probably engaged in the say in the distribution of drugs. If we're talking about narcotics. Was to put them together so they could have a joint approach. So that was a significant interest that I had. I also had an interest in well, diversification was a problem for younger lawyers, both women. Although women started to come into the U.S. Attorney's Office in a very significant way, I think I appointed more women as assistant U.S. Attorneys than had existed in the history of the office. It was considered to be. A man's effort, and of course that day was gone, as it properly should have been. And the goal was to expand and diversify, and that was successful. Minority recruitment was a challenge at the time. Outstanding minority lawyers were in very high demand in both private law firms and other government opportunities, which made it more competitive for us, and it was a challenge as well. Yes. Well, we've come a long way, and we have a long way to go. So, thank you for being a part of the solution. But I have to get to Watergate. 
And I would tell anyone who's listening to this, if you would like to see a more detailed discussion of Earl talking about Watergate, if you Google Earl Silbert, Nixon Presidential Library, Earl had the opportunity to be interviewed for the Presidential Library, and it's a really detailed, good discussion. So I'm going to really ask some follow-up questions of that. In particular, what I want to ask you is this. It sounds like early on, your wife, Pat, is saying, (laughs) this goes higher. Like, this is not just about a small robbery and that she was saying that. And you were more measured as the United States attorney Tell me a little bit about that. It's an interesting story for me to read about it. I had been assigned to lead the investigation into the burglary and the wiretapping in the Watergate office building. And my wife would say to me, he's guilty. That was it. Definitive. No doubt about it. It was clear who the he was, even though she didn't have to say it. And she would say, he's guilty. My only response was, Show me the evidence. You know, and that was usually the end of the discussion, except, you know, a couple of months later, Pat would come in and say there was an announcement on the TV, he's guilty, you know, and we'd go through the same routine. She was also working for McGovern Shriver. She worked under her maiden name so that my identity as her husband would not be um, widely known. And actually, I don't think it was. She continued to tell me that he is guilty. And I continued to say, okay, fine, show me the evidence. That's about how it went. If there's no pardon by President Ford and there had been a trial, would he have been found guilty? That's a complicated question. And the reason I say that is, of course, it turns out the tapes were devastating. I mean, if you listen to the tapes, well, it's... I mean, it's devastating and it establishes certain facts, but it's also devastating in demonstrating the complete absence of any sense of morality or ethics or doing the right thing was part of the routine and the discussions that the president was having with his top advisors. That was eye-opening in a way, in the sense of eye-opening something that's, you know, just awful, number one. And it was also something that, you know, you had to address. Now, mind you, I was not working on the case when the tapes were discovered. Archibald Cox had been selected as the special prosecutor when the case reached a certain point. And Archibald Cox came in as a special prosecutor. And after trying to assist him in a transition and trying to help him make it as easy as possible, we then, my two colleagues and I, withdrew from the case in order to have the special prosecutor be in a position to take over and conduct the invitation, he thought. Can I circle back to the question? Sure. If he wasn't pardoned, based upon what you knew, I know (laughs) you prosecuted the early cases, but knowing everything you know, more likely than not, would he have been convicted? Well, you have to answer that in the sense with whether you assume that the tapes are available or not. When we were in the case, we had a strategy right from the start, what we hoped would lead to an uncovery of whether there were higher-ups involved in the case, including going into the White House and the Committee for Re-Election of the President. That took some time and some slugging. You know, this is hundreds of pages in books. We got to the position where 
we had a breakthrough into an enormous conspiracy to obstruct justice, which was undertaken by Committee for Re-election of the President and also people in the White House. We had made considerable progress on that investigation, and that was very difficult, and you could take you know, hours to talk about that. But eventually we got to the point where, in my view, there was enough to further the case and perhaps indict the president, but this is without the tapes. As it turns out, when the tapes are uncovered and you read through them, I think Nixon, uh, if he were indicted, went to trial in the District of Columbia. I'm, I don't think there's much doubt that he would have been convicted. What was the most stressful moment of your time in the United States Attorney's Office? I'm not sure I can give you one. I probably can give you maybe two I'll or, or three. Well, one is, of course, the Watergate case itself. You know, with everybody banging on your hands, I once complained to Judge Sirica, who was the judge in charge of the grand jury and supervising our work. I said, Judge, I'm getting murdered. No matter what I do, the Democrats think I'm a wuss. They just think I'm not bringing charges against anybody. The Republicans think I'm a till of the Hun. No matter what I do, I'm getting it from all sides. And that didn't make life any easier. I think, unfortunately, on the whole, had a pretty thick skin and what was in the newspapers or the like. They don't know what's going on, what facts we're uncovering, where the investigation is, the progress we're making, or the like. You know, I do, they don't. If they want to yell at me, you know, so be it. That's part of the job. But that was a stressful period. And plus, when you go to trial, as we did, because two of those indicted went to trial, Gordon Liddy and James McCord, when you're going to try a case like that, and David, you would know this, the pressure on that case to win the trial was unthinkable in the sense that I knew I couldn't lose the case. It wasn't so much a case of winning, but not to lose a case like that with all the publicity and all the apparent evidence that we had accumulated and put together from our investigation. You know, I thought about Floyd Patterson when he got knocked out by Sonny Liston and thinking he ought to leave town and, you know, with a wig on his head or something. I had the same feeling. It was just that you couldn't lose. When you figure that you have to prove your case beyond a reasonable doubt, the jury has to be unanimous, and you have no control over the jurors or what their thinking is, that just heightens the anxiety and the tension for any person trying a case, but certainly when trying a case like that under the eye of the news media and the yes. would-be trial lawyers and pundits yeah. and this and that, that was a challenge. Everyone deals with stress differently, and mental health is a big issue today, much more than it was in the 70s, where people didn't necessarily talk about it in the workplace. But today, it's very common to talk about how people are managing stress and handling stress when you are a public figure with that level of expectations, how did you manage stress? I was very fortunate to have a supportive wife, even though she kept telling me that he's guilty. But in addition to that, two colleagues and I were in charge. I was the titular head, but we really worked as a team and had the support among them. And then in the office, you know, the other assistant U.S. attorneys, the then U.S. attorney, they were very supportive, too, and that helped a great deal. Yeah, it sounds like you were surrounded by people that you didn't have to carry it all by yourself. Right. Yeah, that makes a big difference. It really does. Right. Lots of interesting cases over the course of your career. 
One I would love to talk to you about was your defense of former Attorney General Griffin Bell in a what sounds like a fascinating case where he does some type of internal corporate investigation that comes out and then he gets sued for defamation by one of the people in the investigation. That's right. They were good lawyers that brought the suit. It was a manager, a mid-level manager that brought the suit. He was one that Judge Bell, whom I knew, he had served as attorney general and I was U.S. attorney, so we overlapped. That way, we were both in the American College of Trial Lawyers, but he had been its president and one of its leaders. Then he had become attorney general under President Carter and stayed there. And he already had also served as a judge on the Federal Court of Appeals in the 11th Circuit. He called and asked if I would represent him in this case, which was quite an honor. But it also was, again, one of these situations where because of his stature, because of his position, it was a challenge of a case, and that was, again, one of these cases where I also felt, I just can't lose this. Now, again, fortunately, I had a couple of lawyers, you know, working with, and they really contributed to whatever knowledge I had gathered on a defamation case, because I hadn't tried one before. On that score, I was learning a lot, although these colleagues of mine really helped a lot with understanding the law. In addition to that, though, when we went to trial, it was before a judge who himself had been a U.S. attorney. He was a very fine U.S. attorney, a very fine lawyer, very well-respected person of great dignity and common sense. If I had been the plaintiff's counsel, I likely on the surface might have asked him to recuse because he and I had a close relationship. Well, they never brought such a motion, and you would never know from the way the judge ruled that we had that, that close relationship. He kept ruling against me on every single twist and turn in the trial. In some senses, the judge, Bell, and he had different approaches to how they handled certain matters, so that may have contributed. Plus, as I said, it was the way he had of bending over backwards to show the world that he wasn't playing favorites. And who knows whether that had any psychological uh, subconscious role I didn't know. The jury had no trouble. They loved Judge Bell. They called him as an adverse witness to start the trial. And frankly, by the end of the cross-examination of Judge Bell and our cross-examination of the plaintiff, the case went on for another couple of weeks, but in practical effect, it was over. Yes. That trial strategy of calling an adverse witness the opposing party as your first witness before you know the jury hears everything... What are your thoughts on that as a general trial strategy? I don't think I would do it too often because I would rather, if there's any way, have an opportunity to get certain evidence, see what other witnesses are saying before I call the defendant to the stand. I mean, I want my examination of that key witness at a time when I know more than I do going into the trial. Yes. It's a risky proposition. Sounds like that risk did not pay off in the calling Judge Bell in particular when you have an excellent witness. Right. Well, he was a terrific witness. You know, the judge had some opposition when he was nominated to be attorney general. Part of it related to his membership at that time in, I think, some all-white golf club. And the jurors, I recall, was largely minority as it is in the District of Columbia. And I think the plaintiffs thought that they wouldn't like that. The jurors would react to the fact of the club's 
and he would be a good witness to cross-examine. I think that was not the best way to go. It just never went anywhere. The defense never went anywhere. And certainly, I mean, the jurors loved him. They loved him. At the end of the case, they had rendered their verdict. They sent a note to the trial judge and said, you know, the report that you mentioned that the judge had filed that was the basis for the lawsuit against him, the jurors asked if they could have a copy of the report, and the judge gave them all signed copies. So you have a sense of what the jurors thought about the judge and his testimony and the case that was presented to them. What are your thoughts on jurors? After all of the years of practice, do you still believe in the jury system, still believe jurors get it right? I think, generally speaking, jurors do get it right. You've got to be careful in some cases. Community feelings may rise to a pitch that a defendant might not get a, uh, a fair shake with them. And just emotions take over, long-time feelings become dominant, and that can have an impact. It doesn't happen in very many cases, in my view. In fact, in only a few, it's very hard to, if you want to ask a judge to say the prejudice in a particular community is so strong against these defendants that the case should be transferred to another jurisdiction that doesn't have jurors likely to be as influenced or opinionated with respect to events as they do in this case. The courts are not generally receptive to those motions. Most of them lose, and the courts of appeals and even the Supreme Court uphold them. That is, uphold the denial of the motion for a change of venue to try a case in another jurisdiction. Those motions are not very often uh, successful. In jury trials, what was your favorite part? Probably rebuttal, rebuttal argument. And, and why? Because by then I knew what the defense was and their arguments were, and I had the most information available and hopefully could put together the most persuasive argument. And I thought it was also helpful to be in a position, if you could, and certainly in a criminal case you could, to have the last say before the jurors, because in a criminal case of trial, the opening argument is made by the prosecution. The defense then has its opportunity, and the prosecution then has the opportunity for a rebuttal argument. There were some U.S. attorneys that made almost no opening arguments. <laughs> that was about 5% of what they would argue to the juror. The defense counsel argue, and then they'd come in and start. It was really an opening argument together with a rebuttal. I have two uh, former assistant U.S. attorneys in mind, and they were tough lawyers for anyone to meet with. Your private practice, you've been called by others one of the legends of the D.C. white-collar criminal defense bar. What were some of the highlights of private practice for you? In one sense, the kinds of cases that I was working on were cases in which companies and individuals were under investigation by maybe the Department of Justice, the U.S. Attorney's Office, the SEC, or some other agency. And the way the law was developing, individuals under investigation, particularly those that may well going to be indicted, had an opportunity to have their own lawyers. And if you're representing a company, the company usually made lawyers available. You select your own lawyer, they pay the bill. And so what you would often have in an investigation and a trial is the company, if it stays in or has not pled out, pled guilty or made a settle the case, the company and then individuals with their own lawyers. And there are a number of us, most of us former assistant U.S. attorneys, who were representing individuals in those cases. 
working together with these attorneys who had had similar experiences that I had had and were super lawyers, in my view, that was very challenging and frankly professionally rewarding. And it was enjoyable because I liked their company. And so, you know, you work and you worked hard, could be a lot of stress, but at the same time, you had backup and support from the lawyers who were working on representing clients with similar interests. The time period that you spent in private practice, what wisdom do you have on having a, a good quality of life, even while you're actively practicing law? I'm not sure exactly, David, where the practice of law, particularly for younger lawyers, whether they're assistant U.S. attorneys in the government or whether they're in private practice as a younger lawyer in a firm, with the pandemic that has occurred and the change that it has caused in the way young lawyers work at home or in the office or the like, I think this is a potential problem for younger lawyers because they are working a lot at home, not in the office, where their peers are, where their potential mentors are, where other lawyers who have particular skills are readily available. And that camaraderie or that availability is not clear how that's going to play out. I don't think it'll be the same as it has been. I don't think lawyers are going to go spend 50 or 60 hours in an office unless they're in a trial or something like that. I think some will be at a number at home. And how that works out, David, I don't know, but they may lose out on some of that learning that you get from having somebody next door that you say, I got this problem. Can you help me out? Which yeah. is very important, I think. There's a lot of power in proximity. Yes. When proximate to great minds and people that think differently, and definitely that is going to be one of the changes of the next decades and the evolution. I agree with that. I try to ask everyone this, and I do it not because you've had a very, very successful career, but most of the time we learn from people who have suffered a loss, a failure. Usually it's in failure we learn the most lessons, not the mountaintop moments. Is there any case or experience where you've had a low point and you walk through it and there's good lessons from how you walk? through it. I'm sure we all have our challenges. A case that actually bothers me to this day is going to seem simple in a way. But one of the first cases I tried when I was still in the government in the U.S. Attorney's Office, it was a felony case. Four people were shot by whoever committed the crime. And the evidence indicated, and it was pretty good evidence, that some relative fired the shots in a car that was speeding by. The government went to trial. I didn't try the case the first time, but one of my colleagues did. The jury came out with a split 10 to 2, so there was no conviction. But the Garfers decided to try the case again, and that assistant U.S. attorney had another case, so he asked me to try the case, which I didn't know a whole lot about it because he just gave me the file and <laughs> the jury was being selected. So much for advance notice. Almost none. Very little. I don't remember exactly how much, but it was, you know, <laughs> a couple of hours. Not a whole lot, which, you know, that by itself creates some tension, anxiety. This time, after trial, the jurors came in and convicted. And it was a serious crime. Whoever had committed it was a serious crime. There was something about the look 
of the defendant in that case, when I saw him come in and he was looking around, because he'd already been through a trial, and I understood, you know, he didn't have a record of any kind, no trouble. There was something that made it look to me like, he doesn't look like somebody that would do this. Now, mm. that's a stupid way in some respects, I suppose. How are you going to make a judgment based on what you think a person looks like? Well, you know, maybe you can make some judgments. You got to realize that that's an opinion and may be dead wrong. But that bothered me to the point where I went to the chief of the section and explained the situation. I said, you know, there may be some additional evidence that you ought to look into. And in those days, that normally was not well received because they just wanted to get the case through and get it over with. I was permitted to do that, and the police department, to my surprise, agreed to do it. They went down and conducted an investigation, was out of town, and came back and said, we can't find anything. You know, the evidence was such, and it was good evidence, it shows he's the one that did it. The judge called me up because he said he had heard that we were looking into it. He wanted to know, did you come up with anything? I told him, judge, we didn't. So the case stood. That case is, you know, for me, 40 years ago. You know, it's a long time. I think about that case almost every day. Wow. I just don't know. I didn't know, and I thought we had done what we could to try and find out, you know, whether there was a problem, whether there was a potential injustice. We didn't find it. The evidence supported it. 22 out of 24 jurors found guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And yet there was something that to this day is nagging me about that case. That's a good thing, I hate to tell you. At least from my vantage point, it means you care. I'm sure I would rather you personally not have to worry about it. But <laughs> usually I find the things that bother us are a pretty good indicator that we care. Mm -hmm. uh, You've been called a tutor, a cheerleader, a friend, a supporter, a legend. What would you want to be ultimately known for? A decent person, one who cares, a decent person. It's a good thing, and I think you are known for that. Let's talk about the college. What does the American College of Trial Lawyers mean to you? Well, it's an organization that is available only by invitation. And the invitation goes out to persons that the college believes are outstanding in their trial skills, in their ethics that they maintain in the profession, and the quality of work that they bring to the cases that they have. And that's the mission. And the college undertakes a number of programs to try and improve the administration of justice and the practice of trial law. What I like about the college is the talent of the members and the opportunity to you know, spend some time with them, lawyers who have practiced trial law for at least 15 years, and you have a chance to meet and talk with them and find out what it is they do and how they do it and issues or problems and the like. And it's a privilege to be with people that are as talented and dedicated and skilled as they are. If you had a piece of advice that you were going to give, and you are a humble man, but if you gave yourself permission, freedom that you've earned to speak some wisdom into the world to two sets of lawyers, and the first group, I'm going to say they're in kind of the first season of their career, the first 10 years of their career. If you could give that group one piece of advice, what would you give them? 
Well, of course, I never went through that in one sense in terms of a private practice because I went to the government for the first nearly 20 years. But I would recommend that if at all possible in the way the law of practice is developing these days, that they, while trying to learn as much as a general practitioner, have a comfort in just being a lawyer, that they also seek to develop, if they can, an expertise that makes them valuable to other lawyers, including other colleagues in their law office. I think clients are becoming more sophisticated, as they should. They are more demanding of having lawyers that work on their behalf, knowledgeable, skilled, experienced. Part of that, at least, is having an expertise. And then if you were to offer a piece of advice to a second group, we'll say, doesn't matter if they're private government, none of that matters. But second group of lawyers, they're more established in their career, but they're in their 50s or their 60s, and you were going to give them one piece of advice, what would you say? Well, I'd probably still emphasize if they don't have it already, the need to have an expertise. But I also might supplement itself by, in some senses, law firms reward those who have some success in obtaining clients and taking care of the clients, ministering to their needs, being available when the client has a need, and demonstrates an interest in the success of the client so the client feels comfortable that he's got somebody on its side. When you think about the practice of law and your personal involvement in it, when do you think is the right time to begin slowing down? <laughs> I've just kind of gone through that. I practiced for 59 years. Amazing. I was trying to make up my mind whether to continue for another year. And my wife said, the time has come. And she was right. For me, cases and the way practice was developing and all the issues that were coming up, technology was changing well beyond any potential skill I had, that, you know, it was time to move on and have younger lawyers come in and have opportunities and develop their skills and practices. Last question. What quality do you think is the most important quality for a trial lawyer to have? Well, you have to know your rules of evidence, particularly in meeting with a jury. You have to convey to the jurors that you believe in the justice of your case. And you are, as a lawyer, attempting to demonstrate and establish to the comfort of the jurors that that is what you're doing, that you believe in the justice of your case or cause, and therefore they should feel comfortable and ruling in your favor. So I hear personal conviction. That's exactly what I mean. Yes, that's great. Well, I am thankful, thankful for your service to the country. Thank you for your service to the college. And it has been a genuine privilege to interview you today. I wish you the very best. Thank you very much. I appreciate the sensitivity of your questions and your patience. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for listening to Trial Tested. 
Episodes drop on Thursdays. Subscribe now to catch every discussion. Thank you for listening.